You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. I'm one of the elders here at Redemption. Um, I am a pharmacist. I did not go to seminary. I have no formal training. You may put your dictionaries under your seat today. You will not need them. I'm sorry. Um, so, I, you know, I just am thankful for this opportunity. I'm thankful to be here both with you Redemption members and our guests and also the saints from New Hope. Lord, you've just blessed us so much, and we thank you so much for all that you've done. Um, and, and the relationships that we're building with you has just been um, just a joy to my heart. It's warmed my heart, and it's just made me so thankful. So we're glad to have you. So if you have turned with us to Psalm 2, let's go ahead and read that today. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. Now, if we take a moment and we think about kind of the history of the world right here, and we're going to do this quickly, I promise. Let's think about what all has happened. You know, it's hard for us, especially if we've lived here in the comfort of the United States for so long, to take off these security goggles that we kind of always have on because we've always enjoyed this sort of peace and prosperity as a nation. Yet we're still an extremely young nation, and we're one that could really learn from the past because history, both biblical and extra-biblical, tells us that for all time, the great nations and civilizations of the world, they've risen and then they've fallen. We can go all the way back, not just to the first civilization, but we can see the first man and woman, and we can see what happened when God's judgment occurred on them because they decided to rebel against God and try to be like God. This caused a ripple effect for the duration of humanity and a pattern of sin that we know still infects every single man even today. So then what happens is God ultimately decides one day he's going to judge the nations, and he brings this flood to judge the entire world. So he judges all but this one family. He wipes the rest of mankind from the face of the earth because they had fully rebelled against God. There was only evil in man's heart. Yet through his mercy, he saves this one family. And through Noah, we know that he chooses to repopulate the earth and also then promise not to cause destruction of total mankind again. But this, of course, didn't mean that God's judgment over the nations would cease. God is sovereign over matters of the nations. So then what we see as history continues to progress 
is this same sort of judgment we saw with early man. In early Mesopotamia, called the cradle of civilization, we see empires like the Babylonian Empire and the Persian Empire, and they come to reign, but, and with that comes all sorts of new creations and realities, um, religious ideologies and philosophical ideologies. As humans endeavor to shape the way that the world work, works by cultivating fields such as math and science and philosophy, what happens is their reliance on themselves continues to grow but their trust in the divine gradually wanes. The story progresses. Persia will eventually conquer Babylon. And then King Cyrus's grandson goes on this major spending spree, leaving the nation of Persia an easy target for conquest during the Arab Empire. This trend continues time and time again. We see that happen with the great Roman civilization, with the Mongolian Empire, with the British Empire all great nations that had massive influence over the rest of the world. But as it tends to do, history repeats itself. Nations fall and others rise. Now today we see ourselves in the seat of influence in the world. But do not be surprised when ultimately history repeats itself once again. Now my point to this and our point of our psalm today is this not so gentle reminder that our nations led and occupied by sinful men and women will ultimately rebel against the Lord and how the Lord responds. Now, this psalm would have been read to the nation of Israel any time that they would have installed a new king who was ascending to the throne, just as a reminder over God's sovereignty over the nations, a reminder of his judgment over sin, but also of the hope that is offered to those who remain faithful to him. Most importantly, at the end, it tells us of his great grace and mercy when instead of taking matters into our own hands and try to lead the way that we do as sinful individuals, we submit to his will. Now, if you were here for our course seminar of Psalms, you know that um, there's order to how the Psalms are structured. There are some people, of course, that believe that there's no rhyme or reason. They were just put together in some random way. But those that think that there is a meaningful and specific order they know this because this, the Psalms offer a message collectively that would transcend anything that just an individual song could offer. And I agree with that viewpoint. Now, the Psalms primarily authored, authored by King David offer this hope of the future Davidic king all throughout. They anticipate the future reign of the Messiah and the destruction of the wicked. Charles preached on Psalm 1 a couple of months ago, and it offered us these two different paths that a man can take the path of the righteous, and the path of the wicked. We saw how the wicked man becomes comfortable in the way that he lives and actually may be elevated by the worldly standards, and then how the righteous man shows consistently and how he is able to abide by God's word. And even though that in the present time, wicked man may be celebrated, in the future he would be like the chaff that the wind blows away. In other words, he's going to be completely annihilated. Today in Psalm 2, we get a very similar look, but from a standpoint of the nations and rulers, not an individual standpoint. We see the nations rebel, and we see how God responds to that rebellion. I do not think it is coincidence that these two Psalms find themselves back to back because they actually have what's called an inclusio from a literary standpoint. Now, if this is a term you're unfamiliar with, it's simply a thematic bracket that occurs around a particular text. So let's look at what this does in Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, because it's going to drive home a similar point if you look at both of them. 
So if you look at Psalm 1, Psalm 1-1 says this, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. And then you get to the end of our psalm today, Psalm 2, Blessed are all who take refuge in him. You see the inclusio, right? It's the idea of being blessed or happy. It shows us both from an individual standpoint in Psalm 1 and from a national standpoint in Psalm 2 that this occurs only by trusting in and relying on God and his word. So our psalm today is also structured brilliantly in this this very poetic way. We get four scenes, so to speak of, and that'll be our four points today if if you're a note taker. In scene one, we see the enemy kings rebel. In scene two, we get God's response to that rebellion. In scene three, we see how Israel's one true and eternal king, or God's anointed, accomplishes the work of judgment over the rebellious behavior of the nations. And finally, in scene four, we get the warning to the nations to respond appropriately to God and to his rule. So let's start with scene one today, where we see God's rule being opposed. And this will be verses one through three. I'll read them again. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Our psalm opens with a question. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? We've been going through the book of Samuel now for for several months since the beginning of the year, and we've seen the recorded events of David's life firsthand. This is the king that from the time that he was a little boy had a firsthand account of God's goodness, of God's power and his might, and of God's great mercy that is found in him. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, God helps him and the nation of Israel conquer the Philistine giant. In 2 Samuel 5, God hands over the city of Jerusalem to the Israelite nation, giving them this place of safety and rest. And then in most recently, in 2 Samuel chapter 19, the Lord gave David victory over the Ammonites, who foolishly had convinced the nation of Syria in deciding with them to try to go against the nation of Israel. David could see firsthand what the foolishness of rebelling against God looked like. Throughout his reign, this psalm that he authored, and it was attributed to him in Acts chapter 4, this is one of those that's kind of controversial in terms of authorship, but the apostles do attribute it to him in Acts 4. He saw the nation's rage, and he ultimately saw the vanity of that rebellion time and time again as God showed up for the nation of Israel. The Lord promised victory to his anointed king. Why then are there those that rebel against him? We know sin's effect on this world, and we know that that's an easy answer, but our psalm actually goes and gives us the answer to that question, why the nation's rage. Let's look at verse 2 again. It communicates to us that this rebellious nature of the people stems at their very top, the kings and the rulers. They plot together for what? You look at verse 3, it says, they plot together to burst themselves and their people from the bonds and cords that the Lord placed on them. I could not help every time I read this, I thought about Bruce Banner. So if you got the Incredible Hulk, you know? So he sits there in his office doing his research until he's poked, until he's prodded, until folks try to get him to do what they want him to do, until what happens, right? Pop, 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 go the buttons off that freshly dry suited, freshly dry clean shirt. 
and he turns into this raging monstrosity ready to just mow down anything in his path. See, the words in our psalm, these, these are violent words against God's anointed. No longer do we as kings and rulers need to leave by the rule, lead by the rules and the statutes of the Lord. Our people are going to be better off if we make our own rules and we live our own way. This is not a simple rebellion. It's all-out war. The kings and the rulers are outraged because surely they know how best to lead their nation and their people. And then in turn, the eyes, the ears, and the hearts of the people turn towards their earthly rulers instead of the ways of the Lord. And we can look at scriptural examples of this, right? We can see this from the life of King Saul. We could have taken several opportunities in the book of 1 Samuel to see this in play. But specifically, I'll take one from chapter 15 of 1 Samuel. God told Saul to go to battle with the Amalekites, and he wanted them to completely, totally, without failure, eliminate them and their entire livestock from the face of the earth. God was choosing to judge the wicked nation, and Saul's army was going to be the agent of that judgment. But what happens? Instead of Saul carrying out this direct task that God had given them, he decides to return to Israel with their livestock and the Amalekite king still alive. Samuel, the prophet, then confronts him on this matter, and this is what he says in chapter 15. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. See, Saul had convinced himself, he had this sound logic that he had, he had really done no wrong. Wait a second, God, we just brought back the best of the livestock so we could then turn around and sacrifice it to you. We know you love it when we sacrifice things to you, especially the good stuff. But his presumption here is that the Lord wanted their sacrifice over their, or their obedience. That is false. Saul was putting his trust here in his own wisdom, in the way that he thought God wanted him to handle the situation, even though God had given him direct instruction on what to do. Saul wanted to do, like our psalm says, burst the bonds and cords of the Lord away. God was very clear in his instruction, yet Saul still tried to do things his own way. And so what happens when we rebel? The nation of Israel was no stranger to putting their trust into kings and judges rather than in God. In fact, Isaiah had this to say about them in chapter 31. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. And yet he is wise and brings disaster. He does not call back his words, but will arise against the house of the evildoers and against the helpers of those who work iniquity. The Egyptians are man and not God, and their horses are flesh, not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, the helper will stumble, and he who is helped will fall, and they will all perish together. This was written at a time that the Assyrian army was knocking on Israel's door. The nation was terrified of an imminent battle that when they looked over the two armies, what they had and what the Assyrians had, they had no chance. Israel's leaders looked and they saw this massive Egyptian army in the distance. They saw all these chariots and horsemen, and they had to have looked just fierce and mighty. 
They were ready to stand up against this army of Assyria, much more so than the Israelite army looked like it was able to. And it wasn't so much here that they didn't believe in God or have faith in God. They actually just had more faith in what this Egyptian army could offer because they could see it right in front of them, right? So after the Assyrians marched through the northern kingdom of, of Israel and their, of Judah and they marched towards Jerusalem, enter King Hezekiah, who, if you remember from Kings or Chronicles, was one of the few kings who did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. At a time when Judah wanted to trust and cower behind the massive army of Egypt, God showed once again, as promised and prophesied, that he had control over the nations. And ultimately, the Lord came through and single-handedly slaughtered the Assyrian army. In a world where our politics do not trust in God, our schools and our academics do not trust in God, our media has become anti-God and anti-Christian ethics, we have to be careful. The world looks at God as nothing but a bond bringer instead of what he really is, a bond breaker. The way of the Lord is not intended to bring about our destruction, but rather to bring life, to bring hope, to bring peace, and to bring joy. When you look out over our country specifically today, what do you see? We have brother against brother, sister against sister, father against son, we have so forth and so on. We're divided. We grumble. We complain about one another. For what? because we disagree over how our own lives should be governed. Now, in situations where our politics or our beliefs want to trump God's word, that's a good thing, right? It's, we should turn to God's word. We should disagree with what's being said. We should fight. We should contend for the faith. We should hope that it's God's word that will shape and mold our leaders to make decisions to ultimately bring glory and honor to God. We have to think as they think through matters of legislation, justice, and politics. We have to hope that God's word is influencing these things. But as citizens of the heavenly kingdom, we need to ensure that it's God's word as our litmus test to guide us and direct us rather than trusting in things on the earth. During the time that David wrote this psalm, the king would have had massive influence over the people and his decisions would reverberate then through the entire society and shape and mold the way that people thought. Now that still holds true today to an extent. But in our world of social media and global access, we tend to be influenced by so much more than even they were 50 years ago. There are many influencers and personalities that seek to destroy the bonds and cords of God and his word. We have to guard our hearts and our minds from these things. We must, as Christians, refuse to see Christ as the bond bringer like the world does. Where the world seeks to deny his rule and authority over their life, and the lives of others, where they make futile attempts to exert their own authority over God's anointed, we must stand firm in the principles and truths that we find in God's word. And as Christians, we have to be careful in our own lives not to do this from an individual standpoint and to cast away the Lord's authority. When God has you in a particular situation that may be uncomfortable, maybe you're being persecuted, maybe you're just in a rough, tough situation, do you look for a way out or do you look for why God actually has you there? Many times we struggle with discontentment over our circumstance rather than looking to praise God despite our circumstance. Like the nations of the world, we're not going to legislate or align ourselves in such a way by our own means that we create this perfect peace and harmony. That only exists in trusting in the will of the sovereign God and his rule. 
So after we see this rebellion, we go into scene two, where God establishes his rule. Now, when I said earlier that David would have been very perplexed at this question, why, why do these nations rage? Haven't they seen time and time again what the Lord's going to do? It was a futile effort to rebel against God and his anointed. That's how he saw it, yet it still happened. Time and again, this rebellion had led to disaster for Israel and its leaders. And I really do think that David just couldn't fathom what was going on. Why, why would people choose to go against this great and powerful God that had done so much for the nation? Yet again, if Israel's past was an indicator, they would once again rebel, and God would once again respond. So let's see how he does that in the next part of our text. Let's read verses 4 through 6 again. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now, don't confuse God's laughter here with a, a humorous kind of laughter, okay? I think it's much different than that. So I'm going to give you an analogy that I think maybe best describes what, how God's laughing here. So one of the things that I used to do growing up with my dad, I used to love watching wrestling, specifically WCW. So inspired by the likes of the Nature Boy Ric Flair, Sting, or my favorite was Big Van Vader, um, I'd puff up my chest. We'd be watching. I'd get, I'd get all ready to go. I'd look at my dad, eight years old, and say, let's go. Now, do you think my dad was scared? Do you think there was terror on his face? Um, at 37, I couldn't hurt a flea. So at eight, I was no match for dad. Despite that, we would get in this tussle on the floor. We'd start going at it. I'd try to put him in a headlock, figure four, do all that fun stuff. And by about five minutes, I would stand up out of breath, red in the face, and dad would just laugh. He'd get that smirk on his face. I think that's what we do to the God of the universe, right? We think that we're going to go up against him. We think that we're going to go up against his authority, and so he laughs. And it's more in a way of pity. He holds us in derision. Who are we to think that we can stand up against the God Almighty? The Lord knows that we are just fooling ourselves when we try to play God and take away his governance over the earth and over our lives. Another interesting point here in our text is look at God's posture here. He laughs while he is seated in the heavens. God's already in the place of authority. Like citizens of Babel, we seek to build our tower up. We want to be like God. We want to have the authority that God has. We want to rule like God over the face of the earth. We want to elevate ourselves to this greater status, but we cannot. He's already there. We want to be the most prominent, prominent nation. We want to be the wealthiest people. We want to be the most influential, the watchdogs of the world. We want to have authority over people so they'll do what we want them to do. Yet so often when these things become our focus, God tears the tower down. We cannot usurp the king who is already seated on his throne. And who is that king? Our text tells us, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. It's these verses from our psalm today that we're going to see quoted several times in the New Testament. But let's look back at why David in particular would have been using this kind of language of this chosen king. Now, this should be pretty fresh in your minds. It was only a few weeks ago that we covered 2 Samuel chapter 7. You remember this. The Lord had corrected David by rejecting his request to build a temple for him. But after that correction, he enters into this covenant with David. And these are the words that he said, spoken through the prophet Nathan. 
When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, we get very similar language here um, than we did back in, in 2 Samuel. Pastor Justin mentioned why this covenant, covenant reverberates through the rest of time and why it is key to understanding God, God's plan of redemption for all time. Now, our psalm today is affirmation that David truly believed in that covenant promise of God. He knew the hope that it brought to the nation of Israel, and we see the hope that it brings for all time. God makes that promise in 2 Samuel 7 that the offspring of David would have an eternal throne. It would be established forever. He will be the Lord's son, and his love would never depart from him. Seated in heaven at the right hand of the Father is Jesus Christ, his son. How amazing is this? It's spoken of right here hundreds of years before Christ walked the earth. And we on this side of the cross, we know that these things promised to the heir of David have come true in Jesus Christ. If David could believe so wholeheartedly in that promise before the Messiah had come, how much more should we believe those words today when we can look back on the life of Jesus? He is God's anointed, set apart for all eternity to bring about our salvation despite the ways we try to burst apart his bonds and authority. It is the anointed one that will make the nations and rulers attempt to go against God a futile one. God isn't afraid that the kings rage. He isn't afraid of man's schemes. And he certainly isn't concerned or shocked that any of this is happening. And he has sent the heir of David to take action. As we live in a world of uncertainty, unrest in Ukraine and Russia, unrest in China, even in the United States where we see wars or rumors of wars, it can be very concerning. Yet it's comforting to know that we serve a God who is sovereign over the nations. He sits and he rules on his heavenly throne. And though the nations continue to rage today, just like they were at this point in time in the nation of Israel, our king will soon return and put all this to rest. All of the leaders that we see playing this game as to who can exert their power over each other, they're going to be laughed at by the Almighty God for attempting to resist the Lord's rule and his anointed king. Now let's keep reading in our next scene where God's rule will be accomplished. It says this next in the next three verses. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, this is powerful imagery here. We use this imagery of a potter and clay to think about how the Lord shapes us to become more like Christ and how we're sanctified by the Spirit. And that, that's certainly true. But if anyone here has ever tried their hand at pottery, you know how fragile of an art it actually is. You know how quickly the thing that you're trying to create can actually be destroyed. Prophet Jeremiah speaks using similar language in chapter 18. It says this, And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand, and he reworked it into another vessel, as it seemed good for the potter to do. Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. And we get some parallels here in these two passages. Now, while Psalm 2 speaks more broadly to the nations in general, and Jeremiah is speaking to the nation of Israel, 
What we see first and foremost is the assurance of God's sovereignty over the nations. We see in these passages the king or the potter or God and how the nations will plot against him to try to shape themselves. But like the master potter is, God can do with the clay what he wants. He can shape it into a beautiful vessel or he can crush it to pieces. God's sovereignty exists to bring us comfort as we see the nation's rage. The ultimate victor in the war against the nations has always been God and always is his anointed. This is incredibly reassuring for us. We ultimately belong to the kingdom of God. We are grafted into the nation of Israel. We are heirs to the promises of God by our faith in Jesus Christ. The nations of the earth are going to rise and they're going to fall because they are led by sinful men and women, but the promises of God are eternal. They'll never leave us. They will never cease to exist for those who fall under the rule and authority of the Lord. Here we also see the consequences of sin and rebelling against God. He will crush those who oppose him with a rod of iron. And we've said several times today, it can be a little bit uncomfortable to talk about the wrath of God. The imagery is, is quite shocking, right? But God's wrath against sin is a good thing. Because ultimately, in order to restore the world to the way God intended it to be, sin must be eradicated once and for all. And let's not get this confused. Sin was defeated on the cross, but the ultimate judgment against all evil, all sin, and all depravity will return, will occur at Christ's return. The book of Revelation uses the imagery of Psalm 2 to convey this point. It says this, The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end... To him, I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. Those who rebel against the Lord will face their final judgment, and like that fragile piece of clay, it will, they will not stand a chance against the iron rod of the chosen one. This is not a good thing. Rebellion against the Lord brings permanent death. And as Christians, we should be against death. The Lord speaks life into us and by his spirit uses us to go out and speak this life to others. Scripture is very clear on the consequences of rebelling against God. We concerned ourselves over this aspect of life and the life of others as much as we concern ourselves over the current state of affairs in our nations and politics, how much more effective would we be in our evangelism? There's light and there is life to those who are blessed and take refuge in the Lord. And for those that do not, there is only darkness and death. Our psalm concludes today with God's rule being recognized. Here's what the last three verses say. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. I mentioned in the introduction that this was a psalm that would have been read during a newly installed king's coronation. It's a reminder through the eyes of David to keep the perspective of who truly rules. That while today may be the first day of your kingship, your rule over the land, and your authority over the people of Israel, one day, like all the kings that came before you and all the ones that will come after you, your reign will end. But Yahweh's reign is forever. So the psalm gives us an instruction. 
serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Charles Spurgeon says that fear without joy is torment. When we fear the Lord, we do so out of reverence to him. When you do that, you gain perspective that the wisdom and knowledge of the Lord is far greater than anything you could hope to achieve on your own. We serve him over ourselves and our own interests because he is holy and just and deserving of that praise. The gap that exists between us and God is infinite. I think David's words here belong on the same processes, thought process as Paul in Philippians 2 when he tells us to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, to those that do not recognize God as their supreme authority, these words do not mean anything. They're not terror, they're not fear at them, but for us, it should lead us to reverence and awe of who God is. A joyful trembling as if we were standing face to face to God with God and his awesome power. They're meant to humble us and meant to, to teach us and remind us to submit to the will of God. The text goes on to tell its readers to kiss the sun. And we've all watched historical fiction or fantasy movies where an individual is brought in and introduced to the king. The king's usually sitting on this big, massive monstrosity of a throne. He's draped in all this royal attire. The person has walked up to the throne. The king never moves. He just stares at the person, and the man kneels and holds out his hand. It's done as a sign of submission. And then he kisses the ring of the king to show respect. I think that's what our text means here for God. It would do many of our world's rulers Justice to submit to the authority of God, to humble themselves rather than to seek to cast off the bonds. Look at what's going on because so many people want to free themselves from the bonds and cords of God's word. Let's think about this for a second. Politically today, we cannot define what it means to be a man or a woman, much less what it means to be created in the image of God. We refuse to say at what point a human being becomes or ceases to exist a human being because it may hinder someone else's personal autonomy. We refuse to control greed that exists rampantly in corporate America. We refuse to put a patient's well-being and health over profits in our healthcare system. And we refuse to allow common sense wisdom to guide our lawmaking versus some back alley deal that you've made with the lobbying group. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the ways. The text gives us a warning here. It gives us a very severe warning. Those who do not submit to God's son through repentance and faith will be under the righteous wrath of God. They will experience the iron rod of the anointed and they will be crushed to pieces. I find this fact very interesting as I was preparing the sermon and you look back over the last three weeks of sermons here at Redemption, we've been in Psalm, we've been in 2 Samuel, and we've been in 2 Thessalonians. Three different passages, which is unusual for us as a church. We're usually in, in one single thing. But when you look at these three sermons that we've had over the last three weeks, each one of, us, each one of them gives us a severe warning of what happens when we, instead of taking our authority and word from God, we try to do it ourselves. They each offered a warning of what happens when God judges the wicked and what will take place when Christ comes again. The wicked will perish eternally and for all time, and they will be without the presence of the Lord. We should all concern ourselves over the state of the union and of our local affairs. But as Christians, our first and our foremost calling is to do what our psalm says here, 
and take refuge in the sun. Those that continue to defy God will be shattered by the iron rod. And the thing about pottery is once it's broken, it's broken. But for those who allow themselves to continue to be shaped and molded by your creator, you will be blessed. In Psalm 1, Charles told us that the righteous man is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and does not wither. The anointed one, Jesus Christ, is the living water that blesses and nourishes and sustains us despite the bad rule, poor politics, and chaotic environment that we find ourselves in. When we put our trust in the true king, he is our hope, he is our strength, and he is the peace. We know that through him we can endure hardship, we can endure trials, we can endure persecution and all the wicked things that the world presents us, and yet we can still be blessed. You find yourself struggling with God's sovereignty in a world that seems so lost. It's easy to feel this way. It's easy to wonder things like, God, how long are you going to allow this to go on? When are you going to come back and make all this new again? Let our psalm today bring comfort and encouragement to you. Remember, to God, all this rage, all this turmoil, all this confusion that we see is futile. The nations and peoples, they're going to plot in vain. Never has there been a better moment to show the world how much you trust in the hope that is offered and the one who sits in the heavens. He is still king and ruler over all of the earth, and he will come to judge this evil and sin that we encounter each day. If you're not a believer and you just came in here curious or you were invited, I encourage you, find more out about this king that we gather every single week to worship. It is never too early or too late to submit to the calling that God has on your life and to put your trust in him and learn what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Never have you had such peace or joy or understanding as when you realize that it is only through the free gift of God's grace that you're saved. There is nothing for you to do, nothing for you to show God. There is no checklist that is required, just repentance and faith that the anointed one foreshadowed in our psalm today is none other than Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, who came fully human, lived a perfect life on this earth, and willingly sacrificed himself on the cross in order for you and me to have access to the Father in heaven. We would love for anyone who has yet to make that decision to put their trust in him to do so. Please come talk to someone about that. If you want to learn more about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, then we'll be over here in the Connect area. We'll be around anyone in here would love to talk to you. You can live without worry or fear over the state of this world and how it is today. If you've been someone that has tried to constantly cast off the bonds of Christianity, take refuge in the Son who loves and cares for you dearly. It is not too late to allow the Lord to control and have authority over your life and to live under the umbrella of blessings that flow from putting yourself in um, the arms of Jesus. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. May we all seek the refuge of the Lord Jesus Christ in our lives day in and day out. And may we stand in awe of the Lord's anointed for the work that he has already finished.